Welcome to the Highland Good Food Podcast. I'm Emma and this week we're going to be discussing the role of aquaculture, not only in the context of a local food source, but also in its role in flourishing rural coastal communities. First I'll be joined by Ed from Aquascot and together we will explore the challenges and opportunities of the salmon sector. Then Shona from Climavore and Sky will join us to tell us all about the inspiring intertidal work she is driving forward. So welcome Ed and thank you for joining us. Aquascot has a rather special story which has been one of the largest employee-owned businesses in Scotland and one of the UK major seafood processors. So it'd be great if you could start off by telling our listeners a wee bit more about Aquascot and perhaps your role in the organisation. Hi Emma, yes, well thank you for inviting me. I, of course, uh, Aquascot's been around for I think over 30 years actually now. Pretty major employer in the area. We have a factory in all this and employs about 190 people now. And having started off as a small business on the burgeoning salmon industry back in the 80s, it's matured now into a business that is well established within the wider salmon world. And we now feed the Waitrose retail chain with 100% of their fresh and a portion of their smoked salmon. And that's quite a thing to think about when you think about the supply chain and taking fresh product from way up here in the Highlands all the way down to the supermarket chains. Waitrose chains are mostly in the south um, and they're a very demanding client. So Aquascot has to make sure that it is itself a value-laden organisation. I don't know if any of your listeners will know Waitrose at all, but they're a value-laden organisation. They set out what their values are very clearly. Uh, They don't just buy fish. They buy fish which has to jump through all sorts of hoops, whether that be environmental impact, animal welfare, person welfare, sustainability of feed, etc. And we need to face into that fair and square. So my job, I've got a rather grand title actually of head of aquaculture, but my job, I face two ways, as well as a leadership role within the organisation itself. The other two ways I face is out to our retail client. So my job is to understand what their needs are. And then, of course, I need to face back to all of our farming partners, salmon and trout farming companies around Scottish Highlands, and build relationships with them and make sure that I can interpret waitress expectations into actions on the ground. And for the last five years, I've been visiting farms from Shetland, the Outer Hebrides, all the way down to Argyll, Orkney as well, of course, and talking to farmers, talking to technical people, talking to vets, biologists, and running this assessment program, uh, which has given us this amazing insight into the wider industry. And it enables us to spot best practice where we can see it and then promote that best practice. So it's an amazingly privileged uh, position to be in. I meet some extraordinary people, I have to say, and build relationships with not just senior people in these businesses, but the farming managers and the staff on the farms themselves. And these guys and gals are doing a difficult job. It's not easy farming salmon. And I think the industry has challenges. When we think about where it's come from, it's a very young industry. People have been farming cattle and sheep and chickens and pigs for, well, thousands of years. Whereas we've only been farming salmon for 40 years, maybe, if that. Aquaculture itself is much older. If you take a global view and um, you think about the Chinese have innovated on all things aquaculture, especially seaweed, actually. But here in the northwest of Europe, salmon farming is pretty new And I think that means you have to expect to make mistakes. And then as your knowledge base grows, as your customer's expectation grows, as NGOs, 
third party certifications, external input starts to input into what you're doing and how you're doing it. So does the industry evolve and change. We need to be part of that change because our customers are very demanding. You know, there's a sustainability agenda out there, which is increasingly clearly articulated. It's complicated. It's often vastly oversimplified by the press, I have to say. But it's there. It's real. And the Scottish salmon industry needs to face into that. And I could perhaps talk to you later on about how I think that's starting to happen. No, yeah, we'll definitely elaborate on that in a few minutes. It'd be great just to extend what you're saying there about the challenges of the sector. So could you just give us a little bit more detail on what you think the main challenges are for the salmon industry? Yes, salmon farmers have the same challenges as any other farmers. What are we trying to do? We're trying to grow a healthy animal as a healthy product for human consumption. And we're trying to do it in a way that sustains itself both economically, socially and the environmental piece. I think... The challenges are for us is to evolve our farming systems in this very remote and challenging environment, which is the ocean, to evolve our knowledge, our ability to care for the health of the animals and our equipment that fits our customers' expectations. And that has its challenges, you know. And again, I do want to stress that salmon farming is in many ways no different to any other farming. You know, sheep get ticks, cattle get foot and mouth, salmon get ice. We have to deal with the same health challenges that any livestock farmer is having to face. And some of these are are difficult. But what I see and what we promote through our purchasing power is increasing investment in health, especially, and welfare of the animal. And I think that's probably our biggest challenge going forward. The other big challenge is feed sustainability. Salmon naturally feed on fish when they're at sea. So the wild salmon, when it goes to sea, will feed on crustaceans, copepods, small fish, and it develops its pink skin through that diet. It develops its high levels of omega-3 through that same diet. And we have to try and mirror that in the farming environment. And in the old days, we fed the salmon very high levels of fish meal and fish oil. Now that is caught. So these are the vast sardine fisheries in the North Atlantic. And humans don't tend to eat these fish, but it is good food. The surplus is provided for animal feed and salmon and pigs, by the way, and chickens all take a portion of this fish meal. And what's happened is that as the salmon industry has grown, so the amount of fish meal that's required has grown and it's come to a a limit beyond which we should not be fishing. So there are some very powerful third party certification bodies that maintain a sustainable wild catch going into fish feed. So that has plateaued. So that wild catch piece has plateaued. But the salmon industry has still grown. So how has it filled the gap? And the answer is it's filled the gap with alternative ingredients, such as soy. And that was great for a while. You remember I was talking earlier about how you have to allow an industry to evolve and change and find new ways of doing things. So we started to reduce the amount of fish meal and fish oil. Everybody was very happy with that. But of course, you're using soy. So soy has its own issues in the world, uh, not least around deforestation. Now there's good soy and there's bad soy. Don't let anybody tell you that all soy is the same. It isn't, but it also comes from South America. So currently we're working on another alternative feed ingredient, uh, or several of them actually, to try and offset soy. We've got a great project at the moment, based in Iceland actually. We're gonna be testing three ingredients. One is um, algae oil, another is insect meal, and the third is single cell protein. 
And the aldeol one, I think, has the most promise. It's fascinating. This is produced using geothermal energy. So its carbon footprint is fantastic because it's taking heat from the ground. It's taking CO2. The CO2 is used as a feed. And you seed the seawater with algae and it grows using light, which is produced through the geothermal piece using steam. And you end up with an algae meal and an algae oil, hopefully in quantity. That's always a big challenge. Um, which we can use to offset some of the other ingredients, such as soy. I think what I'm trying to paint is a journey, you know. Some people think that farming should be pristine and perfect and is easy, and it's like, we're not growing ball bearings here. We can't put a big piece of metal in one end and get exactly the same product every time out the other. This is biology. So it is complicated. And the environment every now and again gives you a kick in the teeth, and you have to adapt and change and think again. Well, Ed, I can definitely sense your drive and your passion to be creating the best product possible, but at the same time having as little an impact as possible as well on the planet. That's definitely coming through. I was just thinking there and hearing you speaking about collaborating with our northern sort of partners up here in Europe, and I was wondering what role that sort of collaborating with other countries has got, because surely if you're in this time where, as you say, the industry is very new relatively, and it's having to grow and learn exceptionally fast. So learning with yeah. other people is, must be an imperative part of this model for you. So what sort of partnerships and collaborations have you got going on with other countries? Do you know what? It's almost implicit in the industry. And the reason for that is because it's such an expensive thing to do, to grow salmon. You don't get any income from your investment for two to two and a half years. And the investment is substantial. So as the industry has evolved, the amount of money required has become serious. And to your point about collaboration, when you look at where the money's coming from to help this industry evolve, it hasn't all come from Scotland because Norway was evolving its salmon farming industry many years before Scotland began the journey. And they also saw themselves with a salmon farming future quicker than we did. So massive investment went into Norway. And that means that some of our companies here in Scotland are actually owned as mother companies by Norwegian companies. Some people think that's a bad thing. I work in a collaborative world where we, we have to look beyond our borders. Scotland's well known for looking beyond its borders, isn't it? And when you're working in business, if you isolate your thinking, then you isolate your opportunities. So the research, for instance, that comes out of Norway is shared. So I think there's all sorts of implicit collaborations that are occurring already. And maybe I could give you one example of a more recent collaboration. Blue whiting is a fish that generally people don't want to eat. It's caught for animal feed up in the North Atlantic. And there are several governments who catch these fish and have done for years. Iceland, Faroes, Denmark, Norway, Russia and the UK. Now, of course, 20 years ago, the fish were situated in a, over the North Atlantic in a certain uh, distribution pattern. That's changed. Climate change is creating changes in the ocean where you have warmer water moving north. And that's moving species. So species are moving. So these blue whiting have moved. So the old total allowable catches from 20 years ago no longer apply. And yet governments have become used to catching fish to a certain level and are unwilling to change. So the Marine Stewardship Council got involved and have drawn a line in the sand and said, look, your catching of these fish is now going to become unsustainable. We're going to withdraw our approval. And that's been a, a fantastic catalyst for change because what we've now got is a group called NAPA, which is the North Atlantic Pelagic Advocacy Group. 
And we can only advocate, by the way, we can't tell the Icelandics what to do. Um, we can only advocate and create change by collaboration. So we now have this group, and it's a big group of feed companies, farming companies, retailers from across Europe. And at the end of it all, I hope we will have an agreed total allowable catch of blue whiting across the North Atlantic by four or five governments. And the Green Stewardship Council will step back in and say, this is a sustainable fishery, on you go. And that's an example, I think, of the industry and retailers and the feed companies coming together to one end. I wish there was much more of that. Uh, and, and I think maybe there will be. I think collaboration is the way forward. I think the days of companies bouncing off each other are rapidly diminishing and we're all facing into exactly the same climate change. And if we can't work together towards that, then customers will start to bin us. So I'm feeling pretty confident. I'm not underestimating the challenge. Challenges are huge. Uh, the money that's required to make these changes is huge. But people love Scottish salmon. People buy it. I mean, our sales are good. And especially during COVID, which you could argue might have been a panic buying piece. But I like to think it's more that folk are starting to think more about what they're putting in their mouths, into their bodies, looking for healthy options. Scottish salmon's there, ready to serve. <laughs> and the sales mirror that. Yeah, no, no, it's really, really encouraging to hear that. And I think there's a huge amount of positives to take from what you've been detailing there. And obviously, um, the Scotland brand is powerful, isn't it, here and across the world? Do you know why the Scottish brand is powerful? The Scottish brand is powerful because we're very highly regulated. And the retailers have been a key part in this. And when I'm saying the retailers, I'm actually talking about customers. because The retailers feed the customer expectation. And there are certain retailers in the UK who just buy Scottish salmon. And the Scottish piece is rated because it's very highly regulated. And so, sometimes if you listen to all the press, you think it's an unregulated industry. It's the opposite. I don't know another livestock industry that is as regulated or has as many eyes on as Scottish salmon. So we can't afford to screw up. We can't afford to take shortcuts. So that's one reason. There is this trust around the regulation the other one is we've managed to maintain high levels of omega-3, which is what you'd find in the wild fish. And for commercial reasons elsewhere in the world, those levels of omega-3 have been reduced. Scotland's managed to avoid moving down that route, and I think that's been important. Um, just to sort of develop that a little bit more, what has the influence of organic been on the sector? So I think the answer probably is not enough yet. Organic's only about... 5% of the sector. And you have to ask why that is. And because when you farm organically, for instance, you need to reduce your stocking density. So instead of farming at 15 to 20 kilos per meter cubed in your pens, that's 15 to 20 kilos of live salmon swimming about. For the organic piece, you need to go down to 10. Now, there's a debate there because uh, 10 sounds good because there's more space for the animal to move. I believe that. I think my experience of the industry uh, suggests that 10 is, is a suitable place for organic to be. But it does, of course, increase your costs. So if other parts of the industry are at 20 and the animal welfare is being maintained and the organic is at 10, it makes for a much more expensive product. You can see that the price of that fish goes up. And when you put your marketing hat on and your commercial hat on, you have to know that you can sell that fish and only a, a relatively small portion of the population are prepared to spend that extra cash for the organic brand. 
I think that is changing. And my hope is, I think all our hope is that post-COVID, people will be more thoughtful about what they're purchasing and what they're putting in their bodies. And I think the organic piece, I'm hoping, will become a major part of that change. There's two new companies, Cook Aquaculture up in uh, Orkney and Shetland have been farming fabulous organic salmon for some years. And I go to Westry in the northern part of Orkney. They grow beautiful organic salmon in very fast flowing waters. And that flow enables fish to grow fast and hard. It removes the sea lice so much of the sea lice uh, challenge as well. And they've been growing organic fish up there for years. And I think that piece will expand. There's a couple of other operators starting to move into organic production here in Scotland, which is good. So Maui are doing a bit of organic now and organic sea harvest, a brand new company. Used to be an ex-Aquascot uh, guy, actually. Alex McInnes has started organic sea harvest over on Sky, which I think is an incredibly brave thing to do and should be championed. So where do you think the sector's going and what do you think the main opportunities are going forward? The industry needs to face into a burgeoning customer demand for demonstrating its sustainability credentials. And again, like any other farming industry, we're already doing that to some extent, but we have challenges and we need to face into those. So salmon is is already quite a sustainable product. We have a very low feed conversion ratio. If you put an amount of feed into the water, you expect to grow a certain amount of, of animal and for salmon, it's 1.2 kilos of feed will produce one kilo of salmon. And you compare that to chickens, pigs, or certainly beef, we perform very well. Salmon also has a very high edible yield. You know, it doesn't have to grow a big skeleton. So generally, fish have high edible yields. There's a lot of meat on a small amount of bone. And the carbon footprint for salmon, and I double-checked this the other day, carbon footprint per portion of edible protein is about a quarter of that of chicken and up to 20 times less that of beef. So that will change because there's amazing work going on with beef at the moment. A lot of that work is being done in Scotland as well. So salmon has to address its own carbon footprint too. And how is it going to do that? So entirely coincidentally, actually, since you and I started a chat about this blog, the industry has launched a sustainability charter now, Aquascot has been pushing a sustainability piece using our buying power for the last five years or so. So we've been able to contribute amongst many players to this sustainability charter. And it's an amazing piece of work, which lays out a very simple five-point plan. I, I won't need to go into it here. And you, anybody can look it up. You just look up SSPO on the web and look up the sustainability charter and all the details there. But it's focusing in on... Um, animal welfare. So we're looking to become world leaders in animal welfare. We already have RSPCA all over the industry, but we need to go another step. We need to move towards, we're calling it living a good life. How do we know whether our animals are actually living a good life? The answer is you have to become good stockmen. A good farmer can lean on the gate and look at his cows and, and he or she will know whether the animal is in good fettle or not. And we need to be cognizant of our animals' behaviour in exactly the same way. So there's a huge amount of work going in. So we've got cameras under the water now. We can watch the fish all the time. And the cameras can move up and down the water column. And these cameras are becoming increasingly sophisticated. They can pick out lesions on the animal. They can pick out sea lice. So it's really pretty exciting stuff. Impact on the environment is another one. These are the five sustainable charter pieces I was talking about. I think I've talked a little bit about that. That's about feed ingredients as well as environmental impact. 
So there is a farm, experimental, starting up in Loch Long. They will be gathering the fish poo comes out of fish. Now that level of fish poo, sometimes we get criticised for providing lots of fish poo into the ocean. And yes, there is lots of fish poo into the ocean, but the ocean is a big place and assimilates it. That fish poo, some of it lands on the ocean floor and we are regulated to the hilt by CEPA on that one. But this new farm down in Loch Long, they're intending to capture all the waste. And as long as we can remove the salts, you know, it's not simple. If we can do that, find a way to do that, then we'll have a byproduct that can be useful for other types of farming. So there's the environmental piece, the sustainability piece, transparency. I think in the past, our industry has not been transparent. And that's come to a head because when you don't provide data, people make assumptions that you're hiding things. And our industry needed to become much more transparent. And I'm delighted to see that starting to happen now. So anybody can go on to SEPA, for instance, and look up which farms uh, may be doing better and which farms are doing worse. You can look up lice counts. You can look up all sorts of things. And I foresee that transparency piece increasing during the coming years. And then the last one, number five, is to be a good neighbour. Our industry is not going to expand without social licence. And there will always be people who want us to stop doing what we're doing. That's not going to change. And when you look at people who are criticising the industry at this juncture, there's a whole spectrum. So there are some people way off on the far right who will only be happy when the whole industry is closed down. I'd like to see them face into the two and a half thousand people who are employed by the industry, who are sustaining communities up and down the West Coast. And then you have uh, across the spectrum through to some very erudite and able NGOs, for instance, who are seeking to work with the industry to create change. And that's where I believe change occurs by working with people, you can shout from the sidelines and maybe you'll get a change. It definitely plays a part, creates a pressure, which is a good thing to have. But creating sustainable change, I think, my, my belief is you need to work with. Um, and there's some innovative stuff coming forward where we will be, where, where money has come from the peripheries, let's controversially call the, the edges of Northern Europe peripheries. So there's very large sums of money being made by salmon industry and there's lots of taxes and licenses that go into government coffers from this industry and I would like to see as much of that money coming out coming back into the peripheries as well and Fergus Ewing and we had an industry leadership group meeting the other day and Fergus Ewing was very clear that uh, that is the intent so I can see a whole new community funding piece arising from this industry during the coming years. And that, I think, is quite exciting. A bit like the wind farms. If you think about the wind farms fund, wasn't there, that communities can receive. But I think salmon farming has an opportunity to do something similar. And I think the last thing that isn't really mentioned in all of this, but is a big one for me personally, is jobs. Our farming partners provide, it's certainly well over 2,000 jobs anyway, most of which are on the West Coast, in the Northern Islands, and out in the Western Isles. Now, I've lived for some years out in the Western and it's a difficult place to make a living. Tourism is key, but tourism is seasonal. Yeah? Tourism doesn't require much science, should we say. Whereas a salmon farming industry or, or an engineering industry, whatever, think about wind farms there, you can't take the salmon farm away from its position. So the jobs that it creates, and an individual farm will create six to 10 jobs. So that's six to 10 families. And in small communities up and down the West Coast, if you remove those, but I've had first-hand experience of this up in Drumbeg, 
if you remove people from the farms, then you remove people from communities. And when you remove people from communities, things happen. In our experience was the primary school closed down. If you're not careful, you can watch communities die away. So I feel very strongly that um, salmon farming provides a lifeline for these communities to survive. And I, I don't want to see empty spaces on the West. I want to see thriving communities with schools and families and Kayleigh's on a Saturday night. And, you know, that's what I want to see. I'm, I'm not really a rewilding fan <laughs> for the whole of the Western Isles. I'd like to see pockets of rewilding, absolutely. But I'd like to see people in the landscape. And Scottish salmon farming does just that. It provides year-round jobs, very well paid, because you need skills. And I think as the engineering has matured, it has also moved from being a, an environment mostly for men, frankly. And when you have a male-only environment, that can breed its own male-only environment. And that is changing now rapidly too. So we have lots of women in aquaculture now, not just in uh, the biology and the veterinary, but also now on the farms. I'm hopeful that if the industry is allowed to expand and we need the regulators to become more enabling, but we can also maintain communities up and down the West Coast. And if I can be part of helping to make that happen, then I can die happy. <laughs> no, I can really see what you're saying there in terms of the importance of rural communities and rural stability and the role that the salmon sector has there. So it'd be really great just to finish off with a wee bit about how actual people of the Highlands can benefit from this sector. So in terms of getting access to fish, yes, absolutely. Our Scottish fish goes into UK retail and it goes into food service. So that's access for everybody. And in terms of nutrition, in the UK, we have an obesity problem, don't we? We have a nutrition problem in the UK. I read somewhere recently, it was through the Salt Association actually, that 51% of our diet is ultra-processed food. That's a disaster waiting to happen. You know, in France, it's 14. So we do have an issue with food, unfortunately. There's this contradiction in Scotland. We are a country that produces great food, and yet we're not eating enough of it, it turns out. And one of the great foods is omega-3. And we need to produce a food type, in this case, it's salmon, and sea-grown trout as well, by the way, which has high levels of omega-3. As humans, we don't produce omega-3s naturally ourselves. We actually need to eat it. And it has positive effects on all sorts of our physiology, on our heart, our eyes, would you believe it, our brain development, especially for young people. There's claims that it will slow Alzheimer's, uh, even mental health. There's a piece around serotonin levels that suggests omega-3s can, can positively enhance mental health. And now's not the time to go into the detail. You can look things up on the web to find out and to read the research. So omega-3 is essential. Now out at sea, in the wild, the wild salmon is eating algae, which is where omega-3s come from. In salmon farming, we're able to maintain that level of omega-3 so yes, we've got to produce a healthy protein. And I like to think that our salmon is a real food. You know, it's not a processed food. And I would hope that post-COVID again, if we as individuals start to become more cognizant of what we're putting in our bodies and concern ourselves with our health, then salmon will be one of the products that can help maintain a healthy lifestyle. One portion, one sort of 120 gram portion will give you your weekly allowance. We should all do that. We all need to eat more oily fish. We've lost the taste for it somehow. 
and we need to regain it. So go out, buy Scottish salmon, get your omega-3 fix. That's awesome, Ed. Wow, there's so much to take in there, but I really, really appreciate you taking the time this morning to fill us in where salmon's been, where it is, and where you hope it goes going forward. Thanks very much. No problem, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you. So now we get to find out about Climavore and the opportunities that lie within our shores. Welcome, Shona. It is lovely to be able to chat with you today. Please could you start by giving us a bit of background to Climavore and its link with Atlas Arts? Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. So um, Climavore was established in 2015 by Cooking Sections, who are Daniel Fernandez-Pasquale and Alain Schwab. And they are a duo of spatial practitioners based in London. And Climavore is it's a long-term project to explore the question, how do we eat as humans change climates? So I'm sure everyone is aware that kind of seasonality has totally disappeared from our diets. You know, you can go to the supermarket and buy pretty much anything you want any time of year. And so in response to this in the climate emergency, cooking sections started to question what other seasons we could eat according to today. So if we're going through human-made periods of drought, desertification or polluted oceans, how could we adapt food production and consumption accordingly? So Climavore proposes to respond to those conditions and reimagine different food landscapes. So in 2016, I used to work for Atlas Arts, an arts organisation here in Skye. And cooking sections were invited to come to the island to start a project. So they began by researching the island, the history, speaking to lots of different people. And they focused on researching intensive aquaculture around Skye and addressing human-induced climatic alterations to the water. So that um, sounds quite complicated and it includes acidification, antibiotics release, the appearance of different parasites and the disappearance of wild species from our oceans. So through different forms of eating and sourcing of nutrients, they want us to think about ways that we could transition into regenerative aquacultures. You know, it's not just sustainable, but they actually have a positive effect on the environment. Could you tell us a little bit more about regenerative aquaculture and explain what role seaweeds and bivalves have in an intertidal ecosystem? Yeah, of course. So seaweeds and bivalves that live in the intertidal zone are perhaps more important than a lot of people realise to not just the well-being of the intertidal zone but actually the whole marine environment more broadly. So bivalves, which are things like oysters, clams, mussels, razor clams, those kind of things, anything with two shells that open and close, are very important to the ecosystem and the waters because they're filter feeders. So they actually clean the water by breathing and they can help get rid of excess nitrogen in the water, which can be caused by the likes of sewage and fertilizers entering the ocean. And excess nitrogen is really bad because it can cause algal blooms, which deprives the marine ecosystem of oxygen. So one mussel is able to filter up to 25 litres of water a day and one oyster up to 120 litres of water a day. So they work, they're working really hard to clean the water and remove these things in it that are bad for the broader ecosystem. And seaweeds also, in turn, they oxygenate the water through photosynthesis. So they're also adding oxygen back into the water. And I think I read somewhere that the ocean produces more oxygen than all the trees on land. So it's got a hugely important 
place within the sort of worldwide ecosystem as well. So together, all these bivalves and seaweeds are all contributing to create a really rich intertidal ecosystem that supports not just themselves, but all the other species that depend on it. That is fascinating. Traditionally, what intertidal ingredients would folk have eaten around the coast of the Highlands and Islands? Yeah, so I mean, as you say, traditionally the intertidal zone was used by coastal dwellers for millennia. One of the kind of maybe obvious things that you can still probably see, you can certainly see them around Sky, and I'm sure you can see them in other places around the highlands, is something called a fish trap or a carry in Gaelic, which was built to trap various different fish. So you'll maybe see them at low tide. Certainly in Sky, it's sort of an intertidal loss. So at low tide, when the water goes out, you see these kind of curved structures still in the water they've probably fallen down now they were built with stones and maybe some wood and sort of tied together in some kind of way but they were basically used to trap fish so the water comes in all the fish come in with it and then as the water comes out it traps the fish so people would go down and gather various different types of fish to eat but then obviously with the highland clearances many tenants were resettled along the coastline into coastal crofts which actually had very little land which was suitable for cultivation of what they were used to growing. So this resulted in a lot of them working in the kelp industry. So they would gather and burn kelp to produce kelp ash, which was used in various different industrial manufacturing. But with the collapse of the kelp industry and sort of potato famine and all these kind of things, there was a real poverty around the highlands, which meant many people then turned to the intertidal zone for food. So they were forced to survive of what they could gather in the tidal zones with things like whelks, mussels, oysters, and seaweeds. So for many, eating those ingredients was a sign of poverty but over the years the, you know these ingredients have kind of stayed within people's diets and their sort of family recipes and the cultural heritage of these places so you continue to sort of see how evidence of them being used for example things like dulse soup there's people still in sky who collect dulse and make dulse soup every year or something called carrageen pudding which is kind of like a panna cotta but using carrageen, which is a seaweed which sets the milk to create a really delicious pudding. And then we've got a current project that we're just about to launch fairly soon called Collective Coast, which is very much looking at these recipes and about gathering these stories of how people used to use these ingredients around the island as a way to sort of learn and grow for a sort of archive of information around these ingredients and how they were used. When I think of Climavore, the image I have is the oyster table installation at Portree. Yeah, yeah. Could you tell us about that and about how its role fluctuates with the tide? Yeah, so the oyster table was how the project was launched in Sky. So Climb of Our Own Tidal Zones is the name of the project, which was started by Atlas Arts in 2017. So we constructed an oyster table in Bayfield, which is a sort of tidal area of Portree. So every day at high tide, this installation it works as an underwater. It's now a multi-species table as well. It doesn't just have oysters in it anymore. It's got various different bivalves and it's been sort of overtaken by seaweeds as well. So it works as a sort of little ecosystem filtering the water, all of them doing their great work. And then at low tide, as the installation emerges uh, above the sea line, it acts as a dining table for humans. So in 2017, for the launch of the project, the table was activated by cooking sections alongside various different local chefs, residents, politicians and researchers who all came down to the table to participate in various different conversations. So over breakfast, lunch or dinner, according to the tides, 
performative meals happened there featuring a series of climate war ingredients. So everyone was fed a dish when they came down. So that could have included, for example, a DLT, which is a dulse lettuce and tomato sandwich, or a lasagna for sure, which is a lentil lasagna, but rather than layers of pasta, it's layers of kelp. So the project in this sort of way and the Oyster Table um, collaborated with local restaurants in Sky and Rassay to incorporate these dishes into their menus. So they featured various different seaweeds and bivalves and the aim was to reconnect people with the use of these tidal ingredients and enhance the care of the state of the water. And the Oyster Table is still there and it still continues to be a kind of focal point for the project. Have you ever managed to capture the impact this project has had on local people's food choices and diet? Yeah, I mean, sort of over the years, we've had various other iterations where we've gone down to the oyster table and had different events or discussions. And we've always sort of put out a survey afterwards. And there's been several comments about how people are more inclined to, to think locally or consider where their food's coming from, perhaps shifting from something that they maybe thought it was a sustainable choice but actually when they really interrogated it actually wasn't and so perhaps understanding these ingredients now more and then understanding their own coastline how they can gather and forage for themselves. Am I right in saying that mussels and perhaps all bivalves are the most sustainable animal protein on the planet? Yeah, they're, they're really, really good for you. And yeah, obviously, as I was saying about all the regenerative role they have, that they're not just sustainable, they're regenerative. And that's a big difference about how we think about our food, I think. That is brilliant. You're talking there about collaborating with chefs who are showcasing these ingredients on Rassi and Sky. It'd be wonderful if you could tell us how you've involved and partnered up with other parts of your community. Yeah, yes. I mean, collaboration is really central to all climate war projects. I mean, we understand that we're not experts in marine science or any of these things. So it's really important that we bring in people who are experts and who do understand these various different things, whether it's fishermen, salmon farmers, activists, chefs, politicians. Bringing them all in to be part of these conversations that we're having is really important and helping us to sort of explore the themes around it and then develop the project as it evolves. So to give you some examples, on a really kind of local level, obviously I mentioned the restaurants and cafes, which are being integrating these ingredients into their menus, but they've also participated in something called the Climb Over Apprenticeship Programme, which we launched in 2018 through working with Poetry High School and the Home Economics Department there. So over the two years since we started there, 40 students have trained to become Climb Over Chefs. So we sort of created these interventions into their home economics programme where we invited various different chefs and producers to come in and showcase these ingredients to the students. So we had a local scallop diver come in and show them. We'll talk to them about the benefits of scallop diving compared to dredging, for example, and how positive an effect they have on the environment and then showed the kids how to prepare them and make a scallop driver's breakfast which was the most indulgent breakfast I've ever seen which was two tatty scones and a scallop in the middle (laughs) and it tasted great. We also had Michael Smith who's a Michelin star chef on the island he came in and taught the students about mussels and how cheap they are and how nutritious they are and how to prepare them. And then at the end of each year, the students were offered the opportunity to apply to be and climb over apprentice in various different restaurants around the island where they could continue to learn the skills and also sort of spread the climb over word amongst the diners there. And we've also worked with Portree Primary School, bringing students 
from the sort of younger years down to the intertidal zone, which many of them don't engage with anymore. So sort of that re-engagement with this part of their environment, but also their cultural heritage and sort of find things and created them. Um, we worked with an artist and did these beautiful big drawings with them. We've worked with Coolin Brewery, a brewery down in Sligahim, to create a Climavore beer using seaweed and oyster shells rather than calcium carbonate to start for the process of brewing. And then we, we moved on various different film screenings, coastal walks, and we've also established a local advisory group to support the work and have sort of that constant kind of engagement with various different people from the island. And then looking forward, I mentioned the project Collective Coast, which is going to be launching very soon. It's funded by Historic Environment Scotland's Year of Coast and Waters. And it's about recording and thinking about our changing relationship with the coast and waters around Sky and Rassi. And by gathering knowledge from the residents past and present, we hope to sort of understand more about the island's coastal heritage for the future. And then we're also collaborating with West Highland College, part of the University of Highlands and Islands, on their construction skills course to look at historical applications and techniques of construction. So sort of historical like tabby concrete and seaweed thatching or insulation and shell composites. And then looking at how these materials could be used in more contemporary construction with different new approaches with the aim to look at reducing the ecological impact of the built environment. So yeah, working with the people of the island is really, really important. Surely this concept could be replicated across all Highland coastal communities. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, that's that's our ultimate aim and that's part of the research that we're doing into creating our own kind of idea of uh, intertidal farm. And the idea would be to create a model that is replicable. But also, I think part of these conversations that you're having with this podcast and other, I think more and more people are having these conversations about how we can think small, local, and sort of how we can individually within our communities make these changes happen. And I think that's really exciting, especially sort of thinking about both the climate emergency, but with COVID as well, and now Brexit on our horizon. I think these sort of things are going to be much more important for us to lead on as well. Could you now tell us about Climavore Station and the different strands of activities? Yeah, yeah. So in 2019, so just over a year ago, we actually established Climavore as a community interest company registered here in Sky, and that's allowing us to really develop some of these strands of activity in much greater detail. So the ultimate aim of Climavore is to create a Climavore Station which brings together all these conversations and research that we've been having over the years into a kind of central hub of some sort, whether that's a physical building or not, um, which acts as an sort of educational and heritage centre or space to understand and learn about the coastal ecology of Sky in the west of Scotland and probably the Highlands as a whole. And so within this, we've established three different strands of activity, learning, research and building. So the learning I've kind of touched upon with the apprenticeships we've done and working with the young people and the research is where we're really focusing on this farm idea and a project called CLIP, which stands for Closed Loop Intertidal Polyculture, which is inspired by the sky's coastal heritage. Through that, we're designing a new way to cultivate tidal ingredients. So as I say, in response to the climate emergency, COVID and Brexit, these things are like impending on our horizon. And CLIP hopes to be a kind of model that will help generate more resilient and sustainable future for coastal communities. 
Saratur Tidal Farm, which spreads from kind of the salt marsh area down to low tide mark, will grow a variety of marsh greens, seaweeds and bivalves. We're looking at whether it's maybe one farm or multiple different farms around the island and how this as a model could be replicated in other coastal communities. So it would not just be a sort of farm in which it regenerates the coastal habitat where it exists, but it will also be a way to offer apprenticeships, generate long-term employment opportunities for people in these places. And we're also thinking it's an opportunity to provide food experiences for visitors to these places, which I think is on people's minds when they visit places like Skye and the Highlands about where their food comes from and about having these kind of experiences that are much more in tune with the environment in which they're visiting. And so as part of that, we're hoping to establish a new circular economy for Sky, in which we use the waste shells from the farm and from the restaurants around the island to feed into these construction workshops and create these new materials which can be used in construction sector. So within that, we're, we're currently undertaking a lot of research. We're working with advisors from a local level through to international level. And we are hoping to start work on that, doing a feasibility study early next year. And then the third strand, which is building, kind of ties all that together and the, the climate forest station and how it brings together all those different threads. And if it is a physical space, how we use some of those materials that we are working with and those ethos that we're developing through the workshops to actually either renovate or build a new space. This has been such an inspiring conversation. The innovation blows my mind. I absolutely love it. Where should our listeners go to find out more? Well, they can come along to our Climavore uh, website, which is just climavore.org. Feel free for them to email me. It's just shona at climavore.org as well. I'd be happy to talk to them or fill them in or answer any questions they might have. Thank you for that. And finally, what is your one wish for the Highland food system? Yeah, I was thinking about this. So I think it would be for a more innovative and forward-thinking, climate-conscious food system. So moving towards more local regenerative opportunities around how we produce and consume food. I think we're in a real sort of opportunity. And kind of, we talked about this idea of testing small-scale models and cooperatives run by communities around the Highlands, rather than large multinationals as a way to rethink the food system for future generations. Now that is a well-balanced wish. I love it. Thank you so much for your time today, Shona, and keep up the great work. I have thoroughly enjoyed talking with both Shona and Ed, and I hope you've enjoyed listening. These conversations are emphasising to me the importance of good local food, not only from a nutritional point of view, but also in the context of our local economy, sustainable communities, and our cultural heritage. It's fascinating to discover the salmon sector is leading the way with their sustainability charter, and to learn we can farm in our seas in a restorative way with a model like Climavore. Really fascinating stuff. I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thank you all for the positive feedback we've received. We are really delighted so many of you are enjoying this podcast series in the Highlands and beyond. If you're feeling inspired and want to join the food movement in the Highlands, why not come along to our conference in January? Get tickets at highlandgoodfood.scot forward slash conference. Hope to see you there.